Welcome to the Ink and Think Hour, where two best friends discuss cartoons like they're high art, because they are. Episode 11, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Jeremy, we have scaled Anthology Mountain and come down the other side refreshed, revigorated, enriched. Especially by the balm that is... The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Oh, okay. So you really liked it, huh? I loved this anthology. Mm, interesting. You didn't? No, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it a lot. Mm. Um, in Last week, I think, I was a little premature in getting us to rank our favorite anthology movies. And while I would still say that Saludos Amigos was my least favorite, I think this one has replaced the three caballeros for me for favorite of the anthology tales for sure i think this also beats fun and fancy free for me as the best yeah i I think it's just there's only two which is i think a good a good recipe for an anthology series they have kind of a framing device that connects them together although it's loose Mm -hmm. it's essentially framed as two narrators warring over who is the greatest character in literature and in this movie's case it's exclusively western literature specifically english and american and for the first story we have basil rathbone narrating the wind in the willows or the adventure of mr toad and for the second, we have Bing Crosby narrating The Legend of Sleepy Hollow or The Adventure of Ichabod, making their cases sort of for which one is the best character in all of literature. Although to be fair, I think that if it's the most fabulous character in literature, Toad takes it by a mile. That's true. That's true. Do they specify that it's the most fabulous character? I believe that that's what he says. I think the that's most what fabulous Basil character. makes that argument. I right. don't know if Bing is making that argument. I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked Mr. Toad. I I feel like I laughed the most at Mr. Toad as I've laughed at any of these shorts or movies so far. It really got me a couple times with its jokes. Yeah, and I I don't know what I expected from it. I kind of have this idea that it's sort of like a Dick and Jane children's story in my head. Yeah, this is one where I actually haven't read the book. No, and it really was not what I expected at all. Mm. This, like, fun little caricature of the uh, lower aristocracy or the upper gentry sort of meandering about the world and wreaking havoc. It's sort of like Beatrix Potter on on, um, cocaine. Like... (laughs) Beatrix Potter, but instead of everything being very cozy and pastoral, it's chaotic and frantic. And... And devastatingly disastrous. Yeah, and I think much more interested in the city than the country. Yeah, that's fair. Although, I mean, I mean, it takes place in the country, though. What do you mean? It takes place in the country, but it's it's a less pastoral version of the country, I guess. Sure, I guess if you want to... Maybe let's get into it then and talk about this. Sure, I guess for me it's more... This is like rich people's summer homes rather than people who live in the country. I kind of disagree because they talk about how... Okay, so to set up the adventure of Mr. Toad, essentially the plot of this one is that in this riverside community, 
The grand home along the riverbank is Toad Hall, that is the ancestral home of J. Thaddeus Toad Esquire, who is in charge of taking care of this house that stands as a pillar of the community, is the pride of this riverbank community. The claim that the movie makes is that this grand estate gives prestige to the rest of the community along the riverbank. As a result of being so rich, Toad has a bunch of Fairweather friends, but only a couple that actually care about him. Ratty, Mole, and Angus McBadger, (laughs) who we'll talk about. (laughs) But Toad, unfortunately, has a terrible tendency to get caught up in what they describe as fabulous manias. As his positive mania for fads. Yeah, So he gets really, really excited about the newest technology, about the idea of adventure, about the next uh, adrenaline rush that he can find. And so his friends are constantly telling him that he is running Toad Hall into the ground, that he's spending money he doesn't have. And he's obsessed with these things to the point where he's a menace to society. Yeah. He destroys everything in his path. Part of the reason why Toad Hall is being run into the ground is because these humans who for some reason live amongst these animals, are consistently coming up to give McBadger receipts for the things of theirs that Toad has destroyed. Or broken, yeah. yeah. So the main plot kicks off when Toad decides that his latest mania, his latest obsession is motor cars. And he is accused of stealing a motor car that he shows up with one night after his friends lock him in his room to keep him from buying a motor car. <laughs> The rest of the short is the trial where he is found guilty and his subsequent escape from prison and determination to prove that he is innocent and that he was tricked into trading Toad Hall for the car. So he didn't steal it. He traded for it legitimately. A horrible deal. But regardless, (laughs) he would... A deal that the judge laughs at outright. Mm -hmm. That he would sell his 100,000 pound estate for a car. Yeah. So then the rest of the short is his friends attempting to help him clear his name, which they do, only for Toad claiming that he's reformed to develop a mania for airplanes. So uh, the reason why I'm, I guess I'm curious about your reading about this being about uh, an urban or a rural tension or about the city, are you suggesting that the the car kind of interrupting the peaceful life of this Riverside community is an encroaching sense of modern life? I think that that's true, but I think that Toad is also representative of something more like an aristocratic character. Sure. Uh, particularly given that he ends up in the Tower of London yeah. for his crime, mm-hmm. um, which suggests to me that he's not some common criminal, but that he's being judged by a higher court. Right. Um, and I think that for me, the the distinction that I was trying to make earlier is that Peter Rabbit seems to be about rural people, seems to be about farmers, Mm -hmm. whereas this seems explicitly to be about a sort of moneyed landed gentry. Sure. I would argue that it's still a pastoral gentry, but it it is one where he has... Exorbitant amounts of money and an estate. Yeah. He's not living humbly by the riverside. He's living in an estate. He's Esquire. (laughs) Which is why I kind of think about it as a summer home. I realize that it's probably not his summer home. No, it's his ancestral home. Sure, but it feels almost like... He feels distinct from the community in the sense that he has much more power and influence over whether the community is safe, whether or not it is broken, because he's breaking it all the time. 
this community kind of has to be deferential to him because he's the biggest landowner mm-hmm. in the town. And so he has a, a different kind of relationship to the land he's on. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when the narrator first suggests that Toad is the most fabulous hero in English literature. Uh-huh. My immediate thought was like, absolutely no way. It's got to be somebody written by Oscar Wilde. <laughs> like immediately I was like, no, no, I no. I wrote down that uh, Toad is a kind of Dorian Gray type character too. But that's that's what excited me about this was that I was immediately I was like, oh, no, I see what's going on here. Like this is not just some nursery rhyme for kids, but this is like a really fun exploration of sort of more adult characters the kind of excesses of the aristocracy at the expense of those beneath them or reliant on them yeah Mm -hmm. and just like a fun little heist movie it is a heist movie when they have to break into toad hall at the end to get the deed to prove that he's been framed is is really fun Mm -hmm. um so maybe we should talk about his three friends. Sure. He has three friends, one of which is a mole. Named Mole. Who is sweet, and that's his character. Yep. Almost childlike. Uh, and refuses to think a single bad thing about Toad, even when it seems that Toad is in the wrong. Yep. Then we have the water rat, or ratty, who I thought was a real stick in the mud the whole movie. For the parts of the movie where I was led to believe that Toad was in the wrong, mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I get it. I <laughs> totally understand why your friend would be like, look, sit down. You are costing so much money. Think about you your choices. Have. Stay in your goddamn room and don't buy a car because you've already destroyed half of this town <laughs> with your horse cart. I can understand where he's coming from, but his entire character is just to stick his nose up in the air and say, mm, no, I don't approve of this. Don't <laughs> even wave at your friend. He's beneath us in terms of respectability. And I just thought, next to this fabulous toad who's getting what he wants every step of the way in fabulous fashion, didn't care for him as much. I feel like I quite enjoy having a character who's at least thinking... About the morality of... Sure, you need the contrast to speak back against Toad's um, insatiable adventuring and mania for fads. Yes. And then finally, we have one character named Angus McBadger, who you would think, based on the fact that he wears a tartan and a tam and is named Angus McBadger, that he would be a Scottish character. But no, he's not. (laughs) I mean, I think he's supposed to be. Uh, no, I don't think so, Jeremy. That was definitely not a Scottish accent that, that he was speaking with. Destruction for him who's... That was certainly not a Scottish accent. So I looked up this guy who All voiced right. him because right. I was like, this is maybe the worst Scottish accent I've ever heard. This is an anti-accent. Yes. It's like Disney was just like... Just do an accent, but didn't specify (laughs) what accent he wanted him to do. Right. Or rather, um, Ben Sharpsheen, who is the supervising director on this movie. So he, it might shock you to learn, is not Scottish. (gasps) Born and died in California. (laughs) 
I can't believe you're trying to sell me on this lie. This cannot be true. That man was 1,000% Scottish. At one point, I was just listening to this badger call his friends Laddie, sounding about as Scottish as I did just then. And I just started thinking, do I know what a Scottish accent is? Maybe I'm the one in the wrong, you know? But. No, this is. This is maybe the worst of Disney's accents on record, <laughs> including Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent in Mary Poppins. Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent in Mary Poppins is at least fun. And it's charming. It's goofy and it's caricature-ish, but at least it's like the British, you know? Or it's the English. <laughs> they, they can handle being caricatured a little bit. The Scots have dignity, damn it. <laughs> um, Spoken like a proud Scotty. <laughs> Um, I think probably some Scots would say, no, we don't. But <laughs> um, but regardless, so do you think, do you think Angus McBadger is actually Scottish in the context of the movie in canon? Or do you think he's faking and none of his friends have ever met another Scotchman and know what he ought to sound like? I mean, I think that's possible given that it seems like toad's furthest adventures are sort of to the middle boroughs i really like the idea that angus mcbadger is like he the original angus mcbadger's californian nephew that stole his identity (laughs) to inherit his wealth and that's the only story that i'll accept about angus mcbadger i think i would buy that if there was any sense that angus mcbadger had anything near nearing wealth but given that he is head of household for a declining estate, mm-hmm. I kind of think that there's not a whole lot of wealth there. Well, maybe he he spent it all paying off blackmailers that noticed that he was clearly not his Scottish grandfather. Sure. Anyway, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Another Lynn-spiracy brought to you by Lynn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> so... You mentioned something earlier that I want to kind of circle back on that I thought was interesting about this short is the relative sizes of all of their furniture and their houses. Yeah. It was really confusing to me. I don't know if you felt that way. I wasn't so confused about the furniture and whatnot as I was distinctly about the humans that clearly live in the same world. It Okay, the humans in a way actually comforted me a little bit because it made it make a little more sense to me, kind okay. of, in the sense that we see houses that are about, say, rat-sized for a rat to live in, but then once we're inside Rat's house, he only gets up to, like, the doorknob of his front door, for example. Right. At Toad Hall, there's one scene where Angus McBadger is sitting at a desk and it's perfectly suited to him. It's perfectly badger-sized. And then we see another scene where Rat and Mole are sitting outside of Toad's bedroom in these gigantic human-sized chairs. Right. So what is with the motley of decoration in this world that seems to oscillate wildly between human and various animal sizes? Are they suggesting that some of Toad's ancestors were human or or gigantic frogs? I mean, to be fair, his fair weather friends Uh were humans. So they gave him chairs? Well, they must have had to bring chairs in order to live in his hall. Maybe. But I also think that the fact that Rat is living in a house that is clearly 
too big for him at some angles and just right at others? Mm -hmm. Did he have a human roommate at one point? I mean, I don't think any of these characters has ever had a roommate. Maybe. I was thinking about that in terms of the trap door. Uh Uh-huh. Where they go through this little tiny tunnel that is clearly just bigger than a rat and a mole and a badger and a toad Mm -hmm. in their minuscule little rowboat into this trap door that is a bunch of bookshelves that are the size of Toad's home. Yeah, I mean, I guess all of this to say is that the short plays really fast and loose with the proportions Mm -hmm. in a way where I just started thinking like, what is the history of these things? <laughs> there seems to be, uh, we only really see humans when we're in court. So it's as though only animals inhabit this this riverside community. You know what? I have, a, I have my own conspiracy theory. Okay, here. lay it on me. My conspiracy theory here is that Toad Hall, before it was Toad Hall, belonged to a human aristocrat. Mm-hmm. And once they decided that the animals who were living in, who were living along the river in shambles, needed to feel as though there was some sort of prestige in being an animal by the river, Mm. Toad's family was gifted this human-sized home Mm. that then became the ancestral home of the Toad family. Okay. And because Toads have such short lifespans... That those ancestors pile up quicker and quicker. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I buy that. So that does kind of bring up an interesting tension then where it seems as though animals inhabit the country with various levels of prestige, but regardless, that's their home. And humans inhabit the world of society or the city or the courts. Right. What do you make of that? You know what, though? They don't exclusively. No? Because we have a human bartender. Oh, that's right. But he's kind of fallen. He's kind of mm-hmm. evil. And I think the suggestion is that he's slumming it with these weasels. I mean, to be fair, spoiler alerts for a film from 1949. <laughs> he turns out to be the head of the weasel gang. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like maybe he's like fallen out of society. Okay. I'm, I'm see, up do you see what I'm kind here. of trying to lie down here a little bit? Yeah. It's almost as though there's the dual suggestion that animals are closer to nature and therefore um, the pastoral world is closer to nature and this is a simpler life or should be a simpler life. I particularly buy that given Cyril Proudbottom Mm -hmm. as a character. The horse? The horse. The horse who is both Toad's horse pulling his cart and his best friend Mm -hmm. who seems to me to be the closest we get to a rural a truly rural person Mm -hmm. in this world. It reminds me of a particular type of novel that was in vogue in the kind of 18th and 19th centuries, where it was the aristocratic longing for the simplicity of the countryside. And that kind of romanticized vision of the countryside of this is a simpler place. They are closer to their ancestors. It's a more humble life. And therefore, we represent it as the life of these animals, as natural creatures, closer to nature in a very literal sense, right. outside of society. And so the joke with something like this is that the world of society and, and humans is put on top of these more these rural animals, that they have to go to court and argue against 
uh, grand theft, essentially. And and against against a representative of the crown. Yeah. Which, I guess, 1908 is Edward? Yeah. Yeah, Edward VII. Mm-hmm. So then, is this about the threat and the danger of modern technology or modern vices and the effects that they might have on these quote-unquote simpler places, on these more rural communities, on this romanticized vision of a pastoral country setting. Of the rural aristocracy. Yeah. Or the ones that they're responsible for in this community. Right. I mean, I think absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. We have the, the introduction of the motor car comes while Toad is riding his horse and buggy. Mm hmm And it feels to me almost immediately that it is that clash of Mm -hmm. cultures. Yeah. Which, interestingly, if the horse is a member of their community, says something interesting about automation Mm -hmm. and, like, the threat of automation. He's being replaced. Yeah. Yeah. On the livelihood of rural folks. Mm Mm-hmm. There's also a sense that the idle aristocrat is incredibly dangerous and everyone is kind of at his mercy. In the sense that Rat and Mole at one point stop Toad when he is just galloping down the road on a cart and his friend, the horse, Cyril. And they say, Toad, you have to stop these wicked ways. You're in debt. You're breaking things all the time. You are a menace to your community. And we want better for you as your friends. And Toad says, I can't give it up. This is my career. And I, which made me laugh a lot, the idea that just being a terror is his career. But I think that speaks to the purposelessness of this aristocratic lifestyle. That, of course, he's running around and chasing the next fad. He has nothing to do. He has all of this wealth that just sits there. Someone else is managing it for him or not managing it for Mm -hmm. him. And... The fact that he has no occupation or nothing to do is depicted as something that comes with these mercurial random moods that people live in terror of, Mm -hmm. that he is randomly destructive to the town that he lives in. So I, I think that's interesting in comparison to something like the thesis of this short, which is that he's the most fabulous character ever, but he's also a character that seems to be being critiqued a little bit. Yeah, well, I think... I think that tension is obviously there, even thinking about 1908, uh-huh. in terms of he's fabulous because he is somebody that that the working class can aspire to be. If you can afford a car, you too can be towed. Yeah. You too can cause this destruction. And I think that it's supposed to be inspiring in that way. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, we're supposed to temper that with, but you still do have responsibilities for the other people in in the world. Yeah, it's this kind of sense of extravagant wealth and aristocracy they exist to give us things to maybe not even aspire to but to romanticize and to and to idealize the idea that there's this fabulous personality who will entertain you with stories mm-hmm. it is it is maybe being positioned by this short as something that is good mm-hmm. and something that people need for whatever reason and i think that that kind of ties into the final line of the short which is Basil Rathbone, known, by the way, as one of history's best Sherlock Holmes in the 30s and 40s, I think, mm-hmm. mainly. He was in a number of Sherlock Holmes movies, also in the 1930s Robin Hood, which is one of my favorite old Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. So Basil Rathbone, it was such a treat to see him pop up. Also, I assume who Basil of Baker Street is named after. 
Yes. Later on in the Disney canon. But he closes out the short with this line, and that was the fabulous Thaddeus Toad. But let's weigh our judgment carefully, we moles and rats and badgers. Don't we envy him a bit? I know I do. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of that final line? I mean, again, I I buy that as this is someone either to aspire to or to believe that you could be and to envy. Yeah. To, to want to be in that position. I just think about things today like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, mm-hmm. where it's that same type of these people are stupidly wealthy and they can get anything they want and their antics are ridiculous and empty and hollow, but they command such an audience and people really attach themselves emotionally to their stories. Yeah, well, and I think particularly when we when he's talking about um, adventure, uh-huh. it makes me think of like, YouTube travel vloggers. Yeah. People who just go from country to country taking pictures of everything that they do. And it's that sort of like, wouldn't it be lovely if we could be idle and just have these adventures that often have enormous impacts on the people around them? Yeah. But that we are meant to take as this is just good fun. Because they're selling us an image of of these places or these lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about how Toad is both how the movie revels in his antics and his excesses, but ultimately kind of seems to come at him with an air of critique at the same time. It's almost trying to have its cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we find that a satisfying balance in 2020. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I kind of don't know either, to be honest with you. Maybe one thing that I keep coming up to is that it does really seem like it's not J. Thaddeus Toad quit being a playboy. It's J. Thaddeus Toad quit being a playboy at the expense of other people. Yeah. And I wonder if there is some sort of way to, if there's some sort of way to shore the two up. Mm-hmm. If there is a way to revel in excess without... Hurting other people? Hurting, yeah. Without that excess coming from other people and coming what the they're expense. giving to you. Yeah. yeah, coming at the expense of other people. And I don't know. And maybe that's the question that this short is kind of latently asking mm-hmm. us to think about. Um, I don't know that every single piece of media necessarily has to come with a neat thesis of thing good or thing bad. Right. Sometimes works of fiction just offer you this debate and kind of let you take up your own thoughts on it. Give you some evidence and often an anecdote or two. Yeah. How do you feel about this? Do you ultimately think that excess can be ethical? I don't know. Or do you absolutely hate Ratty, who is the voice of reason (laughs) in this world? It's, I don't know. I, I think that certainly the short ultimately seems to say that what we get out of this character and this personality are these fabulous stories. Like the best, the most fabulous character in literature, according to Basil Rathbone, that we get these stories and these romances and that those can keep us going during tough times. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we find that a satisfying answer, I think that's the answer that the short gives. Sure. That these figures of incredible excess and irresponsibility entertain us and there's value in that Mm -hmm. and that toad in the end deciding he's going to go back to his ways is just kind of something to laugh at actually i don't know if we want to go off on that side note but uh having just finished bojack horseman Mm -hmm. um bojack has a very similar bojack has a very similar theme going beneath it Mm -hmm. that bojack is a bad person who is prone to excess because of his wealth. Yeah. Because he never has to see the consequences. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert for a show that did air in 2020. Yeah. 
in the end, he kind of doesn't, even though he serves jail time, Mm -hmm. doesn't really change. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, uh, I guess we haven't really talked about this yet, but to me was dissatisfying. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's kind of interesting because I wonder if the fact that in a show like BoJack Horseman, where this central character is over and over again hurting other people, not fully confronting the consequences of his actions, and ultimately doesn't really change as much as we might like to see in that kind of neat character arc. But I would argue all of his friends do change, and they Mm -hmm. are all better off, um, arguably because of his bad example, because of the story that he created as a result of his failure to move on. In contrast to him, they are able to make better decisions. And so I wonder if... Characters like Bojack and characters like Toad exist to give us a mirror to ourselves and our own behavior. And in that sense, these wildly excessive and hurtful characters do serve a social purpose, which is showing us what not to do so that we can be better, that we badgers and moles and rats can try to marry these things in a way that is fun, that we can enjoy Toad's fabulousness while also having this discussion about whether or not it is ethical to be so fabulous, (laughs) you know? And that's kind of how I interpreted the ending of Bojack, at least. And I think that it also works here maybe for Mr. Toad. Parts of me buy it and parts of me don't. That's fair. In the sense that, like, I think that, yes, for a certain audience, that is the message they are going to take. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a certain audience mostly who has more power and more ability to be a Bojack Horseman or to be a Toad, Mm -hmm. who is going to take the, like, laugh it off, boys will be boys kind of behavior or kind of response to their behavior as, like, oh, I can do this. But I think that's the type of thing that a short like this is asking us to think about. And sometimes the most interesting works of media are not those works of media that have a really clear thesis, but rather those works of media that have an argument or a debate that they want to see played out, that they don't necessarily answer, Mm. this thing is good or this thing is bad. They simply lay out the facts and ask you to work through how you feel about it. And that's kind of how I felt at the end of Mr. Toad, Mm -hmm. where ultimately it's, it's super fun. It's a great time to just ramble around with Toad and not think about the consequences. You're right, like my resistance to Ratty is that, no, stop, he's so much fun, I just want to hang out with him without thinking about what it must be like to live next to this riotous personality that is constantly breaking everything Mm. in town. So it's interesting how the short kind of takes you on that journey a little bit and simultaneously revels in Toad's fabulous adventuring spirit while also recognizing that there is a need to balance that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But this one was great. I loved it. I thought it was really funny. It was really funny. It was really fun. It was really well animated. Uh Uh-huh. It's funny. I felt like you mentioned Basil of Baker Street, and I feel like Ratty, character-wise, is a prototype. He's like his grandfather or something. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I guess maybe we can talk about a little bit more when we get to Sleepy Hollow, but I feel like there was a lot of... A lot of proto-images. Yes! I wonder if you picked up on the same things that I did. I think I think we did. Okay, so uh, maybe let's move on then to the second short in the anthology, which is Ichabod's Adventure, or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Do you want to give a summary of this one? Uh, yeah, so The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is based on a short story by Washington Irving. Sleepy Hollow tells the story of Ichabod Crane, a school teacher who comes into this small town in 1790s, Dutch Pennsylvania, sort Mm -hmm. of very early American. He 
threatens the town in a sense by flirting with all of the women in the town in order to eat well Uh, (laughs) all the women that can cook yeah yeah and then he falls in love with the daughter of the richest man in town katrina von tassel katrina von tassel has one other major suitor brom bones who is kind of like the toad of this town of sleepy hollow (laughs) in that he's like a fun harmless prankster who's kind of almost like a Gaston, except I like him. Yeah, me too. Uh, he was really fun. He's described as having a wacky humor and prodigious strength. And I was like, I like this Brom Bones. Uh, and then uh, immediately following this description, he feeds grain alcohol to a horse and two dogs. <laughs> uh, he just had a real, like, let's just see what happens kind yeah. of vibe. Yeah. Um. So Brom, who feels threatened by Ichabod who is clearly charming Katrina, tells this ghost story about the headless horseman, who he claims lives in this town, has lost his head, is looking for a new one, Mm -hmm. and will take any head. Any head will do. Yeah. Um, And once Ichabod is leaving the party, uh, the Halloween party hosted by the Von Tassels, he runs into none other than the headless horseman who chases him out of town. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the story sort of ends on a note of... Either he's gone off and married some wealthy widow and had a bunch of children, or the people of Sleepy Hollow know that he is taken by the Headless Horseman and that he is part of the mythology of this small town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of a ghost story, kind of a, a love triangle. Throughout, Bing Crosby serenades us with this foreboding story about how you can't reason with a headless man. So it's kind of... the A lot of the joke is in the contrast between the goofy visuals and Bing Crosby's narration that oh Ichabod's spirit haunted the town and I'll tell you why (laughs) he has a real lazy drawl um Bing Crosby so this one is just funny and exciting and a good little adventure it's a good little ghost story Mm -hmm. that has some interesting characters that does some really great stuff with mood and atmosphere, mm-hmm. uh, especially during the chase scene. Yeah. And that has a little bit to say about the relationship between sort of the rural and the urban in terms of the threat of the scholar coming in and what, what might that mean for a small town. Mm-hmm. That he's kind of distrusted because he's associated with learning, maybe? That he's associated with learning that is non-agricultural, I think, sure, particularly. Yeah. And that he could potentially take over this agricultural town. And he seems to have this bizarre power over women that I could not understand <laughs> at all. Unless Disney is implying that Bing Crosby's sonorous voice is enough to seduce any woman, even if he looks like a rooster and walks as though he has two shovels on his feet. He, not that he has two shovels on his feet, that he has two shovels four feet which i think is a lyric in in one of bing's classic songs right i mean i think that that certainly is there in the sense that these women are fawning over him when he sings at the piano yeah even when that high note is howled by the dog Mm -hmm. and they faint yeah i also think that he's kind of benedict cumberbatchy okay in the sense that he's like weird looking but like because he's got a presence, you're like, maybe that weird looking means attractive. He has a gravitas, yeah. I would say. 
And I think that certainly, certainly a man who comes in and is able to dance, who is a gourmand, mm-hmm. who sort of comes with all of these sort of quote unquote effeminate markings of class that he's come described with town. as a dandy. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think then that both of these shorts have a kind of similar theme in the sense that the world of society or higher learning or these things that are not traditionally associated with agricultural rural life coming into these more pastoral settings and the tension that that results in, whether it's the motor car or whether it's the school teacher. Yeah, I think that this is definitely looking at that tension in a way that I think like Washington Irving is really funny about, Mm -hmm. like the idea that he is the schoolmaster, but he's so poor that he has to treat his terrible students like they're good because they got baskets full of food so yeah, he that he can home, steal <laughs> that he can go home to their mothers and eat a turkey dinner i think he also is stealing from them we don't oh, actually see it but i don't disagree <laughs> he does steal from the pie maker on his way he in. does he steals food all the time so it it's interesting then again comparing him to someone like mr toad it's that idea that like he might seem to be respectable but there's this air of he's taking things He's also underpaid, though, which is, I think, a big difference. Sure. But I think that it's not just that he's taking things. Like, when they're at the party, he just, like, piles his plates full. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it is this sense of, like, there is a propriety mm-hmm. in going to a party hosted by a rich farmer and eating what is not an excess for you. Mm-hmm. But he, like, there's one point where he's dancing with Katrina And he just pulls a slice of cake out Mm -hmm. and swallows it whole before he's turned around. Well, do you think that if we're reading modernity versus tradition, Mm -hmm. rural versus urban life, Mm -hmm. and excess versus taking only what one needs, excess versus modesty, excess versus restraint, regardless, a theme of excess, do you think that the excess that Ichabod demonstrates, constantly, constantly eating and planning to eat and stealing occasionally and going to these rich dinners every night because he lines up the women with his sonorous Bing Crosby-esque voice. Do you think that the short depicts that as a positive excess or a necessary excess? Or is he also being critiqued as we, I think we both felt like Toad is a little bit? I mean, I think that there, the movie is much gentler about his form of excess and sort of plays it off almost as a joke about being that lean and lanky starving Mm -hmm. school teacher but i think it also does play into the fears i think that a lot of rural communities feel even to today of the sense that somebody from the city could come and leech off of our prosperity Mm -hmm. that you could come in and be invited into a home to eat a fancy dinner every night Mm -hmm. despite the fact that you're not contributing to our prosperity. Or at least their perception is that they're not contributing um, because he's the school teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. It's interesting also that Ichabod faces a consequence at the end. He's expelled from the town, whether he's spirited away or whether he's just run off and married a widow. He ultimately kind of is rejected from the society, whereas Mm -hmm. Toad is a part of it. He's not going anywhere because he has all the power in society. So I think that this is another, a a very different context into which to read these themes. But in contrast, I think the the differences are really interesting. Mm. So... You and I both felt like this had some imagery that almost certainly inspired imagery in another Disney movie. Do you want to say... At least one other Disney movie. Do you want to say one, two, three, which one we think it is to see if it's the same one? I have multiple. Okay, I have one main one. Okay, 
We don't have to do right. this game let's, if you don't let's want try to. it because I think I know which one. I think I know the main one. You're okay, three, two, one. Cinderella? Beauty and the Beast. What? Oh no, Beauty and the Beast was the one that I was thinking. Yeah, about. that's okay. Cinderella, you thought. Well, Katrina Van Tassel's design design is especially when she's at the window closing the curtains Mm -hmm. is almost identical it's very cinderella which given that cinderella comes out less than a year later yeah it's interesting because while cinderella is this character that is like drenched in purity katrina is described (laughs) katrina is described in a lot of ways she's an extremely buxom lass who is depicted as being a coquette as being very flirtatious one line in the song that I wrote down is, you can do more with Margaret or Helena or Anne or Angelina, but Katrina will kiss and run to her romance's fun with always another one to start. So it's this weird dual thing where it's like she's really coquettish and flirty and she'll lead you on, but she won't actually put out. Do you think that that lyric is meant to be she won't put out or that like she's not the marrying type? That you can that you can flirt with her, but there's no courting her. I think that one kind of implies the other in the kind of coded language that they're using there. Sure, sure. I I don't disagree because I also had the moment of like, whoa, I can't believe they're going there. <laughs> it just felt kind of bold for a Disney movie, I guess. Yeah. But I but I do think that it might have more to do with the idea that she's going to run away from romance uh-huh and that you're not going to get anywhere with her right but uh, I, in terms I think, of the marriage market but i think that in terms of this kind of idea of romance and flirting that that is the only code that a more a, a culture that prides itself on propriety and respectability can use to talk about sex yes. oh it th- i think there absolutely is that reading i one thing i liked about katrina I actually liked Katrina a lot. I thought she seemed really fun and mm-hmm. in control of herself. Mm-hmm. I liked that although her waist is very thin, she is drawn with thicker arms mm-hmm. and she's described as being plump as a partridge. Mm-hmm. And I wish that they had been a little bolder in not giving her that tiny, perhaps corseted waist. Right. But I liked that she was a curvier girl. Yeah. She's lovely. And of course, we have um, the other woman who kind of looks like the Flora Fauna Merriweather. There's another girl in town that is is short and squat and who is played off more as a joke. Yeah. Um, who we both loved. She was funny, yeah. We both thought she was really cute and really sweet. She just wants to dance. Yeah. Somebody asked this lady to dance. I mean... She's Brom taking did. music lessons. She's obviously accomplished. Yeah. She's obviously got her nose to the ground her ear to the ground in terms of the scuttlebutt of the town yeah she was one of the first people to notice Ichabod come through I think that she would make some guy very happy I think she would too and I'm sad that nobody gave her a chance in this movie but I was happy to see that she seemed to have a good time at that party anyway yeah there's a scene later on where Brahm is trying to interrupt Ichabod and Katrina dancing and this other woman who doesn't get a name he asks her to dance just to have someone to dance over there with um, and replace her with Katrina is his plan. But she just keeps like running around him and like grabbing him. And at one point he's literally just carrying her across the dance floor. She laughs maniacally. And we both thought she seemed like a real hoot. Yeah, I, I would love to hang out with her. Anyways, can we go back to Beauty yes. and the Beast? So Brom Bones is very proto-Gaston. And the opening song is almost note for note. Bell, Bell. yeah. Um, Ichabod is wandering through town as the villagers are looking at him. He's got his nose in a book. 
And there's this, the lyrics are kind of dually, he's strange, but he's fascinating, mm -hmm. which is exactly the... Um, the language of Bell. Exactly. And the final shot of that song is a bunch of villagers watching as Ichabod walks away, unaware of them, with his nose in a book. Mm -hmm. Exactly the final shot of mm -hmm. Bell. Ichabod, what a name. Kind of odd. But nice just the same. Funny pen, funny frame. Ichabod, Ichabod, Ichabod It also includes, um, although it's a woman baker, not a man baker, but a woman baker comes by yeah. and he steals a pie off of her plate. Maybe that's Marie in Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> in Beauty and the, the Beast, baguettes. the line of Marie, the baguettes, hurry, hurry up. up. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's her. Maybe it's the same town. I mean, to be fair, one is in France and one is in America. <sighs> yeah, that's true. Maybe she married a Frenchman and got herself over to France with her baguettes. Possible. Possible. <laughs> Also, um, the short ends with stained glass. Yes, the entire film is framed with a stained glass, which I thought was really neat because it's a stained glass picture of a book. Yeah. With a candle, and so it kind of marries. It kind of marries the opening of something like Snow White, which is looking open. The looking traditional at this, fairy tale book. This fairy tale book with the Beauty and the Beast stained glass. Mm -hmm. And I remember that when Beauty and the Beast did it, it was. It always gave me a sense of we're moving away from the storybook. This is a reinvention of the Disney fairy tale story. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do a book. We're going to do a stained glass. And in doing so, we're going to signal that we're in a new era of films that still pays tribute to that older tradition of the storybook tales. And so it was interesting to see that Ichabod kind of, it seems to be such an inspiration for the look and the feel of Beauty and the Beast. Also the fact that it takes place in a small provincial town that mm -hmm. is over and over again emphasized for how superstitious and how distant it is, how mm -hmm. small it is. Mm. It's depicted in this kind of language that's like, do you know Manhattan? Okay, do you know this small town that's outside Manhattan? That's like a far way, a far distance from Manhattan. Yeah, okay, this is even further uh, to yeah. that side. Like, So it, it was really interesting to see just how much Beauty and the Beast might actually owe to the adventure of Ichabod Crane. Yeah. No, and it was really fun to sort of have that moment. Although I will say that Brom Bones is infinitely better than Gaston. Yeah. He's much, like, he seems much more innocently mischievous. Yes. Although... Or calculatedly mischievous. But it, ultimately, he's just pranking. He's not trying to kill Ichabod. I mean, that sword going past Ichabod's head a number of times mm -hmm. during the final sequence may beg to differ. Well, I mean, even if he is trying to kill Ichabod, he is, in my opinion, trying to get a creepy, scheming old man out of his town and away from the girl that he likes because one thing that we are constantly reminded of with Ichabod, he doesn't just want Katrina for a pure love, mm -hmm. he wants her father's wealth and his resources mm -hmm. and there's one line where he says something to the effect of oh well the old goat can't take it with him so once he's dead i'll own everything and that is indistinguishable from his romantic feelings for katrina right. whereas brahm we don't get as much from him but he seems to be mainly motivated by simply loving katrina again i think for me and maybe i'm reading a little bit too much into this because there's not really any evidence for this in the text i think that Brom feels like he's from a farm town and recognizes that the wealth that the Von Tassels have is 
directly linked to the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And that if he is to take that wealth, he also takes part of the work. Yeah. Where I don't think Ichabod, even when he looks at the fields of grain Mm -hmm. and thinks of them as coins, is not thinking about the fact that labor must go in Mm -hmm. to cultivating those things to trade them for the wealth that the Von have. Yeah, so Brahm is more motivated than by a sense of we need to keep this wealth in the community because this wealth funds the community and the community funds this wealth. We are the ones who are, you know, baking bread with the grain and tilling the fields. Mm-hmm. And Ichabod is an interloper who almost certainly will not be as compassionate to the town as someone like Brahm that's grown up there. At least that's the sense that I got from the short. Yeah. So then I was going to ask you, and I guess you've already kind of answered, who would you pick, Ichabod or Brahm? Brahm. Okay, well, what if I throw in a third option Okay. into the mix? Okay. Ichabod, Brahm, or the Headless Horseman? Brahm. Brahm, easy. Okay. Brahm is easy on the eyes. Uh Uh-huh. He's goofy in that way that, like... He has that wacky sense of humor that Bing Crosby told us about. Um, He's always getting dogs drunk. He would You'd have drunk dogs everywhere, but... I mean, to be fair, he would also take me to the pub every night. And, like, I'm into that. Okay. I would enjoy that sort of bro-ish culture. Okay. Uh, And, again, he can provide. Even if I wasn't a Von Tassel, even if I didn't have the wealth, Mm -hmm. he could provide. That's true. That's a good case for Brom. I don't really have a case for Ichabod because I, I thought ask, he was a creep. What? So your choice is also Brom? No, my choice would be the Headless Horseman. Because <laughs> what the hell would that relationship be like? I would have to know. I mean, to be fair, I'm pretty sure the Headless Horseman is just Brom. That's the suggestion, right? Because it's his horse, although yeah. we don't see it outright. Yeah. But in a world where the Headless Horseman is real, is real? I would rather have a ghost husband. Because you know what, Jeremy? You only live once. You know what? I think this is the first time in our podcast where you have taken the more adventurous route. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. We could ride around on his horse. That'd be fun. You could throw flaming pumpkins at people. I wouldn't do that. I, I'm. I feel like I would not be cruel. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that I would use my ghost husband's powers to terrorize the town. But like dates in the graveyard. Maybe he could introduce me to other ghosts. I could have a whole ghost social life. (laughs) That'd be pretty fun. That does sound nice. Right? And I could have, like, my regular life in the day and then hang out with my ghost husband at night when he comes out and has his powers. Also, to be fair, I just thought of this. Uh Neither of us would want to marry Ichabod because both of our careers are in teaching. Yeah. And I feel like if I marry Brom... I get to take Ichabod's place and teach children. Oh my god. Whereas if I marry Ichabod, we're two eggheads looking for a job. (laughs) Yeah, you're both trying to find a good meal. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair. And I think especially once he's married, like, the idea of going over to all those fancy ladies' house is, Mm -hmm. like, totally off the table. I also feel like, again, thinking about it in those grim terms, I would also probably have to financially support the Headless Horseman. Yes. Because I don't imagine he's got... A bank account sitting around in the spectral (laughs) realm. Under H. Horseman. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? You got to live a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I don't mind being the breadwinner. Yeah. Although, I mean, if we're talking about 1790, Mm -hmm. if either of us were school teachers and we got married, we would have to give up the post as soon as we got married. Well, that's maybe true, but it's less fun to think about. (laughs) (laughs) So this one, I really 
liked a lot too. It was just spooky and funny, and both of these were just, as the title suggests, cool little adventures. Yeah. The only thing I might say about both of them, particularly the second one, is that I don't find the music to be that memorable. I don't find the music that memorable. It's not bad, but I wouldn't, like, I'm not going to go home, like, humming, like, Ichabod Crane, you know? (laughs) Sorry, Bing. My dad loves Bing Crosby. I like Bing Crosby. He's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought that one little song in The Adventures of Mr. Toad was, like, super weird and goofy. There was a song? yeah. Uh, just Mr. goes to show I don't even remember it. I'm sure I'm not making this up. Jeremy, did you invent a musical number? Merrily on our way. The song is called Merrily on our way. Yes, the song is called Merrily on We're on our way to Nottingham oh, or Whittingham yeah, to Buckingham yeah, yeah. or Hemingham. Okay, I remember that. It's a really fun comedy song. It's like a road song, right? It's like a song you sing when you're on a road trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked it. It's goofy. It's got a little bit of wordplay in it. Mm-hmm. Well, fair enough. So I think then if we could sort of wrap this up, we have come up with some themes that I think repeat and are explored differently in both of the shorts. I don't know that necessarily Disney intended, again, for these themes to carry over, because I know, for example, that the Wind in the Willows was in development for a long time before they started on Sleepy Hollow, before Mm -hmm. several of the features we watched even. So I think that just naturally they complement each other really well in terms of thinking about those themes of the encroaching modernity, the encroaching technology into the country and the consequences those things can have, the idea of excess and the unknown consequences that excess can have, and the role of these gigantic figures in our lives and in our storytelling. Are they ultimately still satisfying to us in 2020, these excessively wealthy, destructive characters? And I don't know, but I I think that both shorts kind of allow us to think through all of these themes. I also think at the end of Anthology Mountain, it's nice to come down to two well-written, long-form shorts Mm -hmm. that feel like we're galloping quickly towards the second golden age of Disney. Yeah, so next up we have Cinderella. Finally a full-length movie. And I think we've got full-length movies for a long time from here on out, and that will be a delight. So I am very much looking forward to slipping on the old glass shoes with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm sad to be leaving behind Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Uh, Yeah, screw them. On to what's next. I did genuinely enjoy spending time (laughs) with them, but we will see you, or you will hear from us? Hear from us, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Next week, we will be talking about Cinderella. See you at the bowl. Bye.